take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 will be in verses 17 through 24. As you're turning, I went back out on the football field this week. We started back full-time now, getting ready for next season. And I was fascinated because I've never done this before, so I'm starting season number two. But three months ago, we won the state championship. And what made our boys so good was when they got to the fourth quarter, the last five, six, seven minutes, their stamina, their strength, they're not quitting, they're fighting hard was still there. We had practiced and trained all year, so when it got to the end, got to critical moments in the game, they were giving everything they had and playing as hard as they possibly could. Well, this week we hit the field on Tuesday night from 6.30 to 8.30, and they ran for two solid hours. Uh, We did a little bit of anything and everything, speed and agility. The last little bit, what we did was we had sleds with 50 pounds on them, and they had to drag those 50 yards as fast as they could, back and forth, every one of them four times. When it was finished, these 16, 17, and 18-year-old young men were scattered on the grass laying down. They couldn't move. Some of them had gotten sick to their stomach and had, their supper came back up. Uh, my grandson was walking with me back to the car. I, he drives now, so I pitched the keys and said, the old man's going to let you drive tonight. He said, I don't want to drive. I said, you don't want to drive? Pops, I'm too tired. I, I don't even know if I could hit the brake with my legs. Well, here's my point in telling you this story. These kids were in top-notch physical shape three months ago to win a state championship, and they've already lost it. If a 17, 18-year-old young man who's in the prime and going into the prime physically can lose his athletic stamina that quickly, how careful do you and I need to be in our walk with Christ? See, this is something we do every day. Every day. We practice, we train, we walk with Christ. If you get away from it for a while, if you're not careful, you're going to find that you begin to lose what you need to be able to walk strong. And so I, as I watch these boys give it their all, but yet not have it anymore, they'll get it back here soon. You and I need to take serious what we do every single Sunday here at, at Ridgecrest. I nearly said Village Parkway, but I'm not there anymore. But here at Ridgecrest, because what we do is very, very important. Now, what we're doing now is we're getting into the new life. A a couple, three weeks ago, I made a statement that, for me, I like the study part. I mean, I I always have. I I never got over the fact that people paid me to stay in an office and study and research and do that. I love that. I love the the thought process that's involved, trying to figure out the great doctrines of the faith. And and two or three of you came up and said, that's my problem. All I want to do is just study. I don't want to do anything else. So I have to work on the other side. But two or three of you came up after and said, throw the study away. I just want to do stuff. Well, we're getting into the do stuff now. So we'll be hitting where you're at at this particular point. But my point is going to be we need both of these. We need to thought through carefully the great truths of God's Word. And then we need to put this into practical application. And so today we're going to start the new life. Now, I will make this point at the start. There are no imperative commands in the verse I'm about to read. Because this is what's already taken place within your life. But I want to start with this. This is a name you'll never, well, probably don't know. Some of you might, but I doubt it. Antipater of Sidon. He lived in 100 BC. So about a century before Christ came, he lived. He is very famous for something. 
He's the one who put together the list of the seven wonders of the world. And here's what he wrote. He saw every one of the seven wonders. He traveled all the world during that time frame to see these. And so around 100 B.C., he records these words. He said, I've set my eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, in which is a road for chariots. Literally, Babylonian walls were so thick around this massive city that you could run chariots. And I, if I remember correctly, my study, you could run two chariots side by side all the way around the city. He saw that. And Babylon, during those days, would have been the most majestic city you, you would have ever seen. And then he said, I've, I've seen the statue of Zeus. I've seen the hanging gardens. I've seen the Colossus of the sun. I saw the huge labor of the high pyramids in Egypt. And I saw the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I came to Ephesus and I saw the house of Artemis, the temple of Diane in Ephesus, when I saw that mounted to the clouds, those other marbles lost all their brilliancy. They no longer, they paled in comparison to what I have seen in Ephesus. I've never looked on something so grand in all my life. Now, as I studied this week, that, that was in one of my study books that I was going through, and I got to thinking about that. Do you know how difficult it would have been to be a person in Ephesus during the time Paul came? There he whom preaching, and you have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus, and you're beginning to make that decision. You are going to follow Jesus, but you're now going to walk away from the temple Diane, which is the most stunning thing in all the world. Anywhere you walk within the city of Ephesus, you would have seen the temple. It would be like if you, did, if you were ever in New York City before the Twin Towers collapsed, or maybe if you go all the way back, because you can find this. Let's not use the Twin Towers. Let's use the, stat, uh, the Empire State Building. There are pictures of the Empire State Building when it's built in New York when there were no other skyscrapers around it. It's a pretty stunning picture that you can see. See, what you and I don't realize is the temple that people worshipped at in Jerusalem was the same way. These temples were so huge that the rest of it was just little buildings all around this massive structure. That's what went on in Ephesus, which is a, an amazingly modern city during this time. And they worshipped Artemis, the daughter of Zeus. You've done any of your mythology studies. She was a daughter of Zeus and, 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 and Leto. And also, she was worshipped as a fertility goddess. So immorality was a part of everything that went on. This is a culture in which Paul walked into and began to preach. And the Word of God grew so mightily here that they had a rebelliousness happen there for a while because the people quit going to the temple. They quit buying the silversmiths, uh, idols that they would make. Paul did a stunning job here. So sometimes we look at our culture in which we're living in now and think it's all falling apart. Maybe it is, but God's Word still works. It's still mighty. But you and I have got a call today that we're to walk with Him through whatever we may face in life. And it took courage for these people in Ephesus to walk with Christ, and they did. It takes courage today to walk with Christ, but that's what we're going to do. Would you stand with me as I read, starting in verse 17? I'm going to read through verse 24. You follow in your Bibles as I read now. So I say this, and I affirm it together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, 
being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become calloused, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to the former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seat, and you, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This little section is about now the new life that you and I now have in Christ Jesus. Father, be with us now as we study your word. Teach us through this. Help us to understand what you've accomplished within our lives, what you have brought us from, and what we walk away from, but where we're now going. Help us to understand this so we can be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think sometimes we do this so much that we forget the stunning miracle that took place when we met Jesus Christ. Sometimes we've been in church all of our lives and we've done this and we just kind of not think through again how far God really brought us. You know, I look back on my life, I grew up in the church, but never took it serious. I mean, I, my mom had me there when I was in five days old, I was in the nursery. My parents went every time the doors opened. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We did two-week revivals. We did twice a year, two-week revivals, two-week Bible schools. I mean, you know how all that stuff works. My parents were in the choir. So I was up there late on Wednesday night while they were singing in the choir. The one thing I became good at during that time was I knew where every cubby hole in the church was because we found every one of them. I got in a lot of trouble when mom found out one day that we were walking on top of the, in the attic above the auditorium because we found the secret passage to get up there. So that's what I was good at when it came to church. When it came to knowing things about church, I knew absolutely nothing. And so when I left home to go to, to the university, <laughs> University of Texas, for those who can't say it, Church meant nothing to me. I would join Hyde Park Baptist, one of the great churches in Austin, because I knew they'd send it home. And at business meeting, my parents saw that Steve had joined Hyde Park Baptist Church and probably sat there and went, ah, oh, son's doing well, following our footsteps. I never went again. I only went one Sunday. The other time I went was when they came to visit me for a football game, and I had to go back. But then God got a hold of me a few a couple years later. And when I look on back always towards where I started and where I am today, I'm amazed at the grace that I found. So let's think of where we were. Our old life is gone now. Everyone in this room who confessed faith in Jesus Christ, old life is gone. Verse 22 says, you lay aside the old life. Now I want you to notice this very carefully. Paul is not commanding you to lay aside the old life. That is not an imperative command in the Greek. It's a statement of fact. It's something that has already happened to everyone in this room who confesses Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The old life is gone. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it said this, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That was your old life. 
If you get down to verse 4, but God being rich in mercy with a great love which he loved us, he has now made us alive. That is your new life. And so when he's referencing in verse 22, your former manner of life, you lay aside the old life. See, that's already been done. You and I do not live there anymore. It's not a part of who we are. Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, is very clear about that. He said, knowing this, our old self is crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we're no longer slaves of sin. We now belong to Jesus Christ. And our baptism is a demonstration that that old life is gone. We have laid it aside. But what I want to do for a minute today is, I started to spend the whole sermon here, but I decided I'm just going to do a little bit because I want to spend more towards the end where we are now. But I want to remind us of where we came from. This will be the third time in this book of Ephesians that he has referenced our old life. He does in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when he's talking about you've been influenced by Satan, you've been influenced by the world and the spirit of the age. You're children of wrath. You're, you're led by your lust of your flesh and the lust of your mind. He, nothing but negative at that point. That's what sin does when we're dead in our trespasses and sin. He retouches it again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, when he tells the Gentiles, you're not of the promises of God. You're not of the nation of Israel. You're, you're not a partaker of anything that is going on. But now he comes back and hits one more time. And so in doing that, he's going to say this. Before you met Christ, you lived in the futility of your mind, verse 17, which just means emptiness, uselessness. It means vanity. You know, there's not been a more brilliant nor wealthier man the world's ever known than Solomon. And when Solomon is an older man, he writes Ecclesiastes. He was worn out by life. I don't know if you know, but Solomon died at the age of 60. 60. Read the last chapter of Ecclesiastes and look at a description that he does of himself of being an old man. When he talks about the teeth don't work and the eyes don't see and everything aches. He was so worn out by life at the age of 60 that he was, in a sense, broken physically and he dies at the age of 60. But he records what he learned and he does it in the most amazing way. But how did he start the letter? This man who saw everything, accomplished everything, who literally did everything you could do in life, finally at the end of his life is going to say this, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is empty, all is useless. Peter said the same thing when he wrote his letter. He told, your futile way of living is what you used to do. Guys, most people live through this world. They live their 70 years. And when it's all said and done, there's nothing left. And it's over for them. Nothing good of any kind. That's how most people are going to live. That's where we were. We lived in the futility of our mind. What we held is valuable and important. You know, when I'm going to UT, I had two goals in life. My goals when I was at UT was to be rich and famous. Those are good goals, right? I never got the rich. I did get the fame. It isn't worth it. Those are vanity ideas, thinking there's something that life will give you if you had those two things. No, there's emptiness always in them. It can be in all kinds of ways. I have friends who gave their whole life to professional sports and made it all the way to the top in professional football and baseball, and at the end, it's all over with and it's all done, and it was fun, but there really is not much to it. We lived in the vanities of life. And what vanity does, that futility leads to, a, verse 18, to a darkened understanding about life. 
So you don't really see life clearly. It gets darker and darker the more you follow the foolish ideas of the world. And that then leads in verse 18 to an ignorance. That's what Paul told the church at Rome. People profess to be wise, but they become foolish. And you want to see, watch some of the wise people who are on our television and our news and leading politicians and hear some of the stuff they're saying and we just kind of shake our heads where's common sense gone well whenever you walk in futility of mind it gives you less ability to see clearly what's going on which leads then that all you can mainly do is speculate about life because you have no foundation upon which to stand and what that leads us to is ignorance and that's what excludes us from the life of God verse 18 and that's why people are separated from God it's because what's wrong with inside of them And what that leads to in verse 18 is a hardness of heart. And you see that in people's lives. The longer they live, the harder their heart becomes. You saw it in Pharaoh. Whenever Moses would go to him, and it was the hardness of his own heart, that he could never see nor understand what was going on. And after seeing the ten plagues unfold, he should have fully grasped and understood what was happening. But he never could see and understand the God who was at work right in his midst. But that's what the hardness of heart does. And that leads to a callous heart. A callous heart is somebody who just, they've lost a feeling of shame. They lost all feeling. They're tired of being hurt by life and by others. It's in the perfect tense, and it means it just gets stronger and stronger, that callousness on their heart. And I see that a lot as a pastor over the 45 years in dealing with people through all the hurts that they've been through and all the pains they've suffered to the point they've almost don't care anymore. But it then leads to one last thing, and I'm hitting this quick. This really could be a whole study in itself of what a sinful life is about. They then give themselves up to sensuality, which is the sexual sins. And it means they do it. They're the ones who do it. They're the ones who cross the line. And when you cross that line, guys, you can't uncross it. I had a staff member several, many years ago, my music director. I went to him. I said, I've had somebody tell me this. and I'm I'm asking you straight to your face. Are you sleeping with such and such? a lady in our church. And he looked at me. I caught him totally off guard by that, but he said, no. I said, good, but I don't want to see you talking to her. I don't want to see you around her because you've given the appearance of something. I'm taking you at your word. Now don't do it. A week later, I was on vacation when the phone call called him, and he'd been caught at her house by his wife who then let us know what was going on, and I had to come home Immediately, I walked in that morning in the office. Everybody said, what are you doing home? I said, I just got some stuff I got to do today. And so I fired him that afternoon. Toughest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life. He had an autistic son. So we took care of the son for a good two years with insurance and other things. But it broke my heart. But what I never forgot, I met with him about six months later trying to see if we could redeem something through what had gone wrong because there was more to this story than I've even said. He said this, Steve, I never thought when I crossed the line it was this dark on the other side. It's too late. He cannot uncross what he'd crossed into. That's where the world lives, guys. If you, if you want to go a deeper study, go to Romans 1. This is literally what Romans 1 is all about. Now, here's what I want to tell you something, verse 22. 
That's who all of us were. We may have not crossed this line or that line, but this is who every one of us was. But no longer. No longer. I don't know what your story is, but that's, if you're in Christ, that's old. You can't uncross it, but he can. You can't make it go away, but he can. He can take the darkest of moments and turn a little shine and light on it, and you become white as snow. The miracle of salvation is stunning. It is stunning. I look at my own life and see how God was at work within it, and I'm always amazed. That's why I think that old hymn of ours always stands so strong, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I've been found. I was blind, but now I see. That's God's work within us. And he has brought through us through all of that. We were corrupted in life with the lust of deceit. He has now opened our eyes and we can see and understand. Let's just use a couple of illustrations. What about Cain? How, how, how blind was Cain to the things of God? You would think Cain and Abel's life would be pretty easy at that particular point. And yet Cain could not hear or see what God really wanted, which was the sacrifice of the animal. He brought his own, and when God would not accept it, his temper got the best of him. He lost it, and he eventually kills his brother. The kind of anger it takes in heart to lead to you to take somebody's life, especially somebody in your own family, that's how far he had fallen. You want lust of deceit? He was solely deceived. His own lust got in the way, and it caused the death of his brother. And it was his fault. How about Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? How could anybody do that if you watch Jesus walk on this earth? How could that have even come close to happening that he would turn him in, he would betray him, and yet he never fully saw and understand? And we know that Judas' life was messed up. He'd been stealing the whole time from the money box that they used for the ministry. This corruptness was there. And at the end, as he's watching Jesus do miracles, raise people from the dead, restore sight to the blind, he does not see nor understand. You want the lust of deceit, the blindness, the darkness, and he ends up selling Jesus 30 pieces of silver. I think that's Paul knew where he came from. That's why he said in our letter in chapter 3, verse 8, I'm the least of all the saints. I have no business doing what I do. But God's grace has saved me. And grace was given to me, and I get to preach to you guys the unfathomable riches of Christ. He knew what his old life was about, and he has walked away from all of that. Now, what he does tell them is where they're going. And that is we have new life. New life. Notice verse 24. You've put on the new life in the Lord Jesus. Back in 17, don't walk like the Gentiles walked. Again, this is not a commandment, but a statement of fact. He tells us to get dressed, to clothe ourselves. Now, I will tell you this. For the longest, I thought this was some act that I had to do. And I never could quite grasp or understand it. I couldn't put a definition to how do I clothe myself in righteousness. Because I was taking this, when I read it in English, as a, a command from God to put on this righteousness and holiness. It's not a command. It's not even close to a command. It is a statement of what God has done. He's put the new life on us. He's put us on us, the life of holiness and righteousness. 
Now, what we do with that is, is we walk in a new way. That's what Paul told the church of Galatians. You have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. See, the great deal of salvation simply is this. Your old life, it was real. It's been described there. But you met Jesus. He's given you a new life. Now, what are you going to do with it? I'm not walking like I used to. I can't go back to that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go forward. And here's how you do that. Verse 20. And when he says in verse 20, you didn't learn Christ in this way, but we have been learning about Christ. We didn't learn it in staying in the old life. Learning Christ means we walk in a new life. Jesus said this, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from me, he said. That's what Paul's referencing is. That he would teach and preach. These are people who are learning who Jesus is. They're learning for the example of Christ. They're learning by his words. But that's what we're about now. We got to a new life, and that new life is now. We are now disciples. And the word disciple is the same word for learn here. We're now learning the great truths of what God's done. And so if you go to Ephesians 1, what do you find out? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly place. You learn about God's providence in your life. You learn about him adopting you into his family. You learn about what Jesus did on the cross and his blood, a forgiveness of sin. You learn about the hope you now have. You learn about the mystery of all that God's doing and bringing this together. And you have been sealed with the Spirit of God and the down payment in your life of what he's going to do in the future is the Holy Spirit now within your life. You and I have been given that, and we understand now that we're the most blessed people in all the world. That's what we've been learning. And we understand, how could this even happen to me? What we then learn is, you didn't do anything about it. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive, raised you up, seated you in the heavenly places. What am I supposed to do with my life? No, he's doing something with your life, with everybody else. He's bringing us together on one foundation. The foundation, the apostles and the prophet. Christ is a cornerstone. And he is building a building that one day he's going to come and dwell in its midst. And Paul says, I just pray you'll understand the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of the love of Christ within your life. You're the most blessed people in, your, in all the world. Now walk like that. Live this new life in Christ Jesus. Jesus said to the disciples that last night, I gave you an example. Do as I did. Walk the way I walked. And that's what the disciples were called to do. And so as you and I are learning from Christ, what is unfolding in verse 23 is our minds are being renewed in Christ Jesus. We're being made more and more new every day. 2 Corinthians 4.16, powerful statement by Paul that simply says, do not ever give up. Don't ever quit in life. Though your outer man is decaying, your inner man is being renewed day by day. As you and I walk by faith and trust in Christ, God is working to make you more and more into his image. I love what Philippians 1.6 says, he who begins a good work in you, it's bringing it to completion, and it'll be completed when Christ comes in all of his glory. But every day you get up is God at work in your life, making more new in your life, renewing every single day all that is happening. And as we do that, as he's unfolding that within our lives, what you're seeing is a new self that has been created in righteousness and holiness. Now, God is not commanding us here. Paul's not commanding a new morality He's telling us, this is your life already. 
in holiness and in righteousness. You're clothed in Christ, in his holiness, in his righteousness. You're a new person. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to walk in that every day. See, when we begin to get into more of the commands of how you and I are to live, why do we do this? Because we have a new life. He has rescued us from the old life. And we don't want to be where we used to be. You know, I go back and look at my life when I'm 18, 19, and 20 and where I was going and what I wanted and what I want to accomplish. I am so glad for God's grace because I know where I'd have ended up. See, in November of 80, excuse me, November of 74, I called my mom and dad. They lived in Canada and said, I'm quitting. What I was quitting was college. I was a junior. I had scored a 1.2 GPA that semester. I was an honor student in high school. I made a B in swimming or my GPA would not have been that high. I quit. I can't do this anymore. I still hold the letters that my parents both wrote, not knowing the other wrote letters, and I keep them in a safe at my house even to this day. So I know where my life was going at that point. But it was at that time I came to meet Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Through the impact and influence of my parents and their letters and some friends who knew I would about run my entire life at that particular moment, I came to know Christ. And I look back on my old life Whatever thing I gained from that is not worth anything. I now understand what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 3, 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's my challenge to you this day. Is it once we understand what Jesus has done for us and God gives us the ability to follow that, we're not going back the old life. We're going to get up every day and we want to move forward and we want to be what God's called us to be and we want to do it in the right way and in a good way. And so Romans 12, 2 will suddenly become very alive to every one of us. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be molded and shaped by everybody else. You know, when I was in high school at Little Cypress, uh, high school in southeast Texas, right outside of Orange, Texas, where I grew up. I was always worried about what everybody thought. I wanted to be like Don Dean, the superstar quarterback, who quarterback for that other university in Texas uh, named A&M. But he was our quarterback, and I was his backup. I wanted to be like him. I was worried about what this person thought or this person thought. But you know what was fascinating to me when I walked out of that school on May the 30th of 1971? I never saw any of my friends ever again because I went off to college and never came back I was so worried about what they thought about me I was molded by the world always got to UT and got molded even more by the world but when you come to the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ you don't that's no longer of importance nor value to you anymore what you want to do is be transformed by the renewing of your mind which God is doing that's what Paul talks about here and then you do what Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Now you don't quit. You do as he did. And so we fix our eyes on Christ. Paul told the church of Colossae, set your mind on the things above. It's part of the renewal so you become what he's called you to be. And then when you sing like you did a moment ago and you say, my hope is in Jesus, Christ in me, you mean it. It's real. It's who you are now in Christ. And then you can do what Paul told the church at Colossae. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Now I want to do something to wrap down. I didn't do Romans 1. But let me challenge you later, go back and study Romans 1 and do this. Walk it backwards. I know when you read your Bible, we read the normal way. Ever so often, I like to read things backwards. So if I go backwards, what do I come up with? I come up with a depraved mind is what we start out with at the end of Romans. We live in a very depraved mind situation right now with all that goes on around us. I have a, a Twitter account, and I was thumbing through my news section of Twitter, and they had story after story of these teens who jump somebody at a mall or something, sucker punch them and beat them up and those kind of things. I'm going, how sick that people find joy in this. But depraved minds get to the point they can't even begin to figure right and wrong. They're filled with such hatred. But if then I back up next, what caused it? Well, then it's caused because God gave them up to homosexuality and lesbianism. Why did he do that? If you back up, because he gave them up because of their immorality. If you, get it, you back it up even more because of idolatry, their greed. If you back it up even more, you get to the hardness of the heart. Back it up a little bit more, you get into their darkened understanding. If you back it up a little more, you get to what? Their foolishness and their futility of mind. And you back it up even farther and you get to what the real sin was. You know what the real sin of Romans 1 is? The world cannot do these two things. Honor God. Give thanks. Because they did not honor God and give thanks, they start a road downhill. You and I, before we met God, honor and thankfulness were not a part of who we were. But when you meet who Jesus is, how can you not show him honor? How can you not live your life each day wanting to be pleasing the one who's given you life? And in everything that unfolds within your life, not give thanks. As Romans 8, 28 says, God, for we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him or are called according to his purpose. How can you not be thankful in all circumstances in life, knowing that he's at work, even the most difficult of situations? And how can you not be thankful when you read a little bit farther in Romans 8, and it says this, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And that we are overwhelmingly victors through Christ Jesus. When you know that, your response is to honor him and give thanks. That is the new life in Christ. That is a new walk that you and I are to do. And when you do that, you find out something, and we'll see this in the weeks that now follow. You're going to start walking in a new way. You're going to be reacting to certain situations in a different way. You're going to respond to family in a different way. You're going to respond, and when it comes to the sexual things we see around us, you're going to respond in a manner that will be pleasing to the Father. 
And you're going to wake up one day, and you know what you're going to find out? In walking with him through this, you're going to find that joy and peace fills your life. And when you come together on Sunday morning, you come to be around your family and your friends, but you come because you want to join in with others, and we want to worship and praise him because we're the most blessed people in all the world. So Paul's not telling you, you got to do something to put on a new life. No, he gave you the new life. Now don't walk like the others did. You now walk in a new way. And you do what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. We're going to hold fast the confession of hope and we're going to do without wavering. For he who promises, he is faithful always. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you give us to study your word. And Lord, as we bring our service to conclusion, speak to our hearts what it is to know what this new life is all about that you took, away, uh, took us away from the vanity of life and the emptiness of life and the hopelessness of life. And you have given us a purpose. You've given us a place. And you have given us life. Now, Father, work in our hearts and our minds. Help us as we struggle and strive to be everything you want us to be in Christ. But help us to always know that we need to honor you in everything we do and say. And we need to be thankful always for those are the things that protect and watch over us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a quick word. I started with a football illustration intentionally. Did you see how, you notice how fast my kids lost their endurance and strength after just three months? Let me warn you, if you let honor and thanksgiving get away from you, you may find yourself walking in a manner not pleasing to the Father. Do not underestimate daily honor and thanksgiving to the Father in heaven.